Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In the recent past, anti-Muslim hate crimes and rhetoric have surged across America and Europe. Much of this public discourse revolves around questions of assimilation and where Muslim positions on sexuality and gender fit into national unity. In Sexagon, Muslims, France, and the sexualization of national culture, Muhammad Amadeus Mack explores the politicization of Muslim minority sexuality in France in various cultural domains. Whether in literature, journalistic media, or activist endeavors, the general portrayal of Muslims in these contexts is structured around unmodern attitudes towards sexuality. It is assumed that African and Arab minorities in France are regressive, patriarchal, and intolerant of homosexuality. Through his study of a number of cultural arenas of representation, Mack demonstrates that sexual identities are often unclear, hidden, or in flux. In our conversation, we discuss sexuality and French identity, aspects of non-gendered virility, homosexual clandestinity and the possibility of queer identities, girl gangs, psychoanalysis and Islam, the literary trope of the Arab boy, cinematic representations of ethnic sexualities, the management and surveillance of sexuality, the role of pornography in the sexualization of Muslims, gay interest publications, the continued sexual demonization of Muslims in the current social climate in France and Europe, and the literary production of Eurabia. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Mohammed Amadeus Mack about his wonderful new book, Sexagon, Muslims, France, and the Sexualization of National Culture, published with Fordham University Press in 2017. Welcome, Mohammed. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Great. Happy to be here. Now, your book, uh, Sexagon, this is this is really an excellent book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's uh, theoretically rich, uh, really challenges the reader in, in new ways, both in kind of uh, how you're approaching uh, your content, but also... Uh, kind of the, the various types of uh, texts, so to speak, you're, you're looking at. So it's a, it's a fascinating book and uh, eager to talk to you about it. Uh, we always start a little bit about uh, the authors themselves, though. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to the study of Muslim societies, to, to France, uh, people that might have been influential in uh, steering you into certain types of approaches or uh, or, or content that you're interested in? What what made you the scholar you are today? Um, so first I want to say thanks for inviting me to do this. Uh, I rarely get to sort of speak about my work um, in this kind of interactive format. Um, and yeah, so I'll start kind of the story with my high school experience. So um, I grew up uh, in Southern California, and I'm the child of um, 
two immigrants, basically, uh, one from Austria, the other from the Arab world. Uh, and I'm not going to say where just out of privacy, um, but basically I was in a French school, um, uh, Le Lycée Français de Los Angeles, which is kind of this private school. And, uh, I met a lot of, um, North African students there. Um, and what was, what was kind of interesting for me was that, um, I was able to sort of access, um, Arab culture Muslim culture from an alternative route in a, in a sense, because I didn't grow up speaking Arabic or barely. I was taught a little bit by my grandmother and spent a little time um, in the Middle East. But uh, really, I was learning French before Arabic. So Arab, uh, so French was always sort of like the intellectual language for me, the language that I thought in and studied in and that I would do you know, if I was ever to do something interesting in terms of research in college, it would be in French. Um, so that kind of got me interested in the in the Arab diaspora in Europe. And I also realized that, like, even though there might be a lot of Arab Americans in the United States, uh, we're kind of atomized and we don't really constitute a visible community in the same way that North Africans and Arabs do in France. And so it was sort of like... Um, studying the North African experience in France was for me a way to sort of uh, be part of a community in a way that I couldn't um, in the United States, or at least consider a community. Um, uh, partly because, you know, there's so much positive association um, around the word community in the United States. And that's something that I constantly actually revisit in my teaching is um, the idea of community being something positive or something negative when it comes to sort of communitarism or communitarianism um, in France or people who like, like, uh, like that associates with like. Um, and then I would say fast forwarding to the college years, I kind of dropped French for a while and I came back to this topic um, for an English honors thesis that I wrote about um, literary tourism in North Africa and in particular uh, literary tourism that had a sexual or romantic dimension. And so I was getting into the work of uh, André Gide, uh, André Gide in the American pronunciation, um, <laughs> and other Europeans who went to North Africa and kind of had um, experiences of personal transformation or discovery, and especially sexual discovery. And so I was, I was kind of interested in that, and I used that um, writing sample in order to get into grad school at uh, Columbia University, uh, this time in a French and comparative literature department. Um, and then it became time to sort of pick a topic um, to study, and initially I wanted to just study kind of um, alternative sexuality and um, the Arab diaspora in France. And my um, advisors kind of encouraged me to have a broader scope and to make the topic uh, more relevant. And so uh, what I did was sort of, instead of considering something like homosexuality, I switched my focus to um, homophobia, for instance, and the politicization of homophobia. Because everyone is touched by homophobia, everyone has an attitude about homosexuality and homophobia um, in a way that, um, you know, is different from uh, the narrowness of homosexual experience. So it kind of affects more people. And I was encouraged to sort of do something with a more universal scope. 
Um, so then I kind of got into the topic of like uh, sexual demonization or how certain minorities or uh, immigrant groups are um, basically demonized in the media as sexual menaces or threats um, and how that relates to more traditional forms of, of xenophobia and far right and even just right wing politics. Um, then I got kind of interested in, so there's already been work done in that, uh, in kind of that vein by uh, people like uh, Nasira Genif Soleimas or uh, Eric Fassin or um, Maxime Servul and Nick Rhys Roberts. These are kinds of, these are the books that, that really have dealt with this topic. Uh, but my intervention was to do it more in terms of like cultural studies and to study sort of the contemporary moment also, and to study how um, the cultural arena actually participates in that um, polit politicization of sexuality and uh, the demonization of um, minorities and immigrants. Um, so, you know, one of the premises of sort of the work I'm doing is that um, sexuality today is politicized, and the way it's politicized is that people's integration is, uh, or immigrants' integration and their descendants um, is, is being judged according to the fitness of their views on sexuality and having sort of a quote-unquote progressive set of views on sexuality, um, with progressive just being sort of um, the, the attitudes they, they, they are assumed not to have, Right. So they're assumed to be homophobic. They're assumed to be sexually intolerant. Um, and a, a part of the task of, of uh, a part of my task here was to sort, first sort of criticize that very kind of recent um, amalgamation between proper citizenship and proper quote unquote attitudes about sexuality. Um, but also to kind of dispel this idea that, um, Muslims, Arabs, and France are never queer or do not experience alternative sexuality or do not have aspects of their own cultures uh, that have a place for, um, you know, homoeroticism or um, gender experimentation or even just the parts of Arab and Islamic cultures that might be judged as queer or alternative in terms of um, their gender expression, uh, I, I was kind of trying to emphasize those, um, those elements in, in the book to sort of change the narrative or correct the narrative or to bring in a perspective that, that I wasn't seeing covered in sort of the mainstream media coverage of, of, uh, of this, of this issue or even in scholarship. Now uh, the, the title of your book, Sexagon, this might need a little unpacking, and you're you're kind of already pointing to it with uh, what you what you've been kind of talking about as your general area of interest. Um, but but what do you mean this uh, this word to mean uh, for your readers, and how does it kind of uh, lay out some of the central arguments of the book for you? Okay, so traditionally France has been referred to as a hexagon because of its shape. And because my thesis has to do with the idea that France's national borders are being defined in terms of sexuality, I came up with this pun, um, namely of the sexagon, that, uh, you know, 
this is a sexualized uh, hexagon and its borders are defined by sexuality. Um, and so the way that I describe that in the book is, so each chapter is a little bit um, different. Um, I cover basically uh, five different fields. Um, the first being um, activist discourse of anti-sexism activists and anti-discrimination anti-discrimination activists who work in the French banlieue or multi-ethnic suburbs. Uh, the second is psychoanalytical discourse. There's a lot of psychoanalysts who have weighed in on the immigration debate um, and the immigrate and immigration's impact on what is um, considered to be sort of the delicate relationship between the sexes in France that has been um, put in place over uh, a long period of time, a very slow and delicate process. Um, and they have a lot to say about this because, you know, psychoanalysts um, study the connections between um, sexuality and culture uh, in a very detailed way. Uh, the third field is um, literature. So I studied um, the way interethnic relationships are depicted in literature and more specifically uh, a certain literary trope of the uh, difficult Arab boy or the Arab boy who goes from being a kind of servile assistant in sex tourism literature or literary tourism literature with a kind of sexual component um, to a different status in contemporary France, which is one that is kind of vengeful or angry or resentful. And this becomes the trope of the difficult Arab boy that I kind of unpack in the chapter. Uh, the fourth chapter looks at cinema as a kind of as a form of uh, surveillance. So I look at how cinema kind of pries into the intimate lives of immigrants and minorities because those worlds and their lives are seen as sort of resistant to penetration, and how um, cinema as a kind of tool can pry into these worlds sometimes just to expose, but also um, other times with a kind of sensitivity. Um, which uh, restores a certain intimacy of their private life. So it's sort of a double-edged sword in my, in my analysis. Uh, and the fifth chapter, which probably landed me in the most hot water with um, committee members and so on, was uh, on pornography. Um, and I just found pornography to be like a fascinating and understudied um, cultural document um, that really reflects and distills in the purest possible way, all the anxieties and fears that are um, stoked up in the immigration debate. And not only does it reflect them, but it kind of addresses them in a very honest and direct way, um, notwithstanding all the other, you know, the dark side of this industry, which is about, you know, exploitation, various kinds of exploitation and, um, and exaggerations also of people's fears. So, um, so basically, these kind of five fields, what I'm trying to argue is that the cultural arena, so cultural actors, um, writers, journalists, activists, uh, psychoanalysts, filmmakers, pornography producers, they have also participated in making and building this alignment between proper Frenchness and proper views on sexuality. And these, this sort of proper Frenchness this proper sexualized Frenchness um, has been articulated in counterpoint to um, to uh, sort of Muslim and Arab diaspora understandings of sexuality. But what I'm talking about here, of course, is the assumed Muslim Arab attitudes and not necessarily um, their actual practice. And 
And also I should state that most of the time in the book, I'm only dealing with representations and not actual, um, you know, I'm not doing sociology. I'm not doing ethnography, even if I study those things as kind of um, rhetorical fields or types of discourse. Now, uh, one thread that kind of runs through the book is this notion of virility. Um, so can, can you kind of unpack that term for us? What, what do you mean by that? Uh, how does this notion of uh, virility serve your project um, for, for your subjects that you're looking at? Yeah. So I think it's interesting. It's an interesting moment because um, a couple of other scholars, uh, one of them being Todd Shepard, has also paid a lot of attention to this term. And I saw it kind of coming up a lot in maybe not the term itself, but what the term refers to. I saw it coming up a lot in my research, which was mainly done between, I would say, like 2008 and 2012, 13. Um, and what I what I was noticing was that uh, virility for me was not just about men. It had to do with other kinds of um, you know character traits and conditions and um, statuses. So what I mean by that is, for instance, like I can take something like um, the phenomenon of. Um, girl gangs in the French banlieue um, and study how, for instance, women who wear hip hop attire, uh, who might wear baggy clothes or athletic gear and speak in a certain assertive way uh, or with a deep voice or using slang uh, might be perceived as um, having sacrificed their femininity or even might be perceived as lesbian when there's a slippage from a kind of quote unquote masculine gender expression to lesbianism. Right. Um, a lot of female rappers have dealt with these sort of, um, aspersions of lesbianism just because of their gender expression. And what I was trying to say is that, um, in these, uh, neighborhoods, um, in the cultural productions I was looking at, um, masculinity and and i'm using virility a little bit differently from masculinity um so i wanted to to sort of um redefine virility in the work that i was doing um because virility um normally is derived from you know the latin root vir which refers to men but um what i was trying to say is that virility can be produced not just by men but also women um, women can uh, participate in what virility means uh, when we're talking about uh, les femmes viriles or virile women in, uh, in terms of uh, these girl gangs or in terms of just women who have a kind of um, athletic hip-hop uh, demeanor. Um, and that for me, virility, uh, the expression of virility ended up having less to do with, um, with sexuality or gender expression and more to do with um, neighborhood belonging or expressing certain kinds of urban attachments and also uh, expressing the fact that one comes from France's visible minorities as a children are, are children of immigrants are part of the diaspora um, and so that meant that both men and women who belong to those classes could have 
um, a very similar sort of language, very similar codes. And it's those codes that I'm calling virile and not necessarily their gender expression. And I'm saying that code is more primordial than um, what we normally refer to when we talk about virility, um, because we see that even those um, sort of candidates for ideal assimilation in France, namely, you know, women and homosexuals. And I should sort of go into a parenthesis here and say that um, because the banlieue or the French multi-ethnic suburbs are seen as inhospitable or sexually intolerant, inhospitable to sexual minorities and women and sexually intolerant, there is a lot of sort of rhetoric about um, helping um, women who come from these areas and especially helping uh, young gays and lesbians who are invited to sort of flee that area as sexual refugees and find safety in uh, the city center. Um, so I noticed in the research that I was doing that, um, you know, banlieue sexual minorities and banlieue women um, held on to these codes, these manners of speaking, these manners of dressing, which I'm calling virile codes. Um, and that showed that virility was something that was less a, less a trait that had to do with sex or gender and more to do with, um, you know, location and class and religion and uh, minority experience. So that's, that's how I would kind of explain my perhaps non-traditional use of the word uh, virility. And so, for instance, to talk about um, girl gangs and how girl gangs um, allow us to see how virility is constructed and mastered and performed, uh, kind of in a way that reminds me of um, Jack Hallerstam's work on uh, female masculinity, um, allows us to see, you know, once we can see virility outside the traditional male body, we can see how it is constructed. And if I can just add on something, Muslim women actually who wear the veil have been characterized as uh, masculine in certain feminist discourses, I would say more mainstream feminist discourses, um, because the veil interestingly is seen as a kind of armor and as a kind of combative appendage. And so, you know, uh, Fadela Amara, for instance, who used to be part of this, or, or who was one of the founders of the group uh, Niprit Nisomis, uh, or it, the translation in English is Neither Sluts Nor Doormats, which was an uh, activist group um, that was advocating for women's rights in the banlieue. So she uh, termed uh, Muslim women, and especially educated Muslim women going to university, she called them the soldiers of green fascism. And uh, so it was just interesting me, to me how, like, uh, the veil kind of which might be considered in maybe non-French context as a sort of, uh, it could accentuate femininity, it could be an enhancement of femininity or used to express femininity, in this context is seen as either censoring femininity or as being in, in itself masculine. And that Islam itself, if, you know, veiled women and Muslim men kind of with beards, both of them would be seen as masculine, and thus the religion as a whole kind of appears more masculine if veiled women appear that way also. Now, uh, one of the other kind of major threads that's throughout the book, and, and you pick it up in different ways, um, is this kind of tension between uh, ethnic sexuality and, and French identity, in a sense. Um, 
through kind of uh, this this notion of homosexual clandestinity that you you talk about. So, how does that play out for your your subjects in these representations, and how would you say that these queer identities disrupt kind of national narratives about sexuality? The story of kind of clandestinity actually starts not in the terrain of um, gender and sexuality and queer studies, but actually um, in the terrain of, quote unquote, illegal immigration or undocumented immigration. And clandestinité or clandestinity, in my usage, refers to sort of the condition of being uh, or living underground or shying away from scrutiny. Uh, it could refer to sort of underground economies. Um, and the kind of um, parallel that I wanted to make between that clandestinity and sexual clandestinity is that I believe, uh, or I was trying to argue, that um, sexual subcultures also act in this clandestine mode. So, for instance, um, you know, North Africa, the North African diaspora in France. Um, has uh, sexual, I would say, sexual minority subcultures. Uh, they're quite vibrant. There are clubs and nightclubs dedicated to it. There's online communities uh, that I talk about in my book that are dedicated to it. But they prioritize what they call discretion or not uh, sticking out, not being ostentatious, not necessarily requiring um, that everyone uh, be you know, quote unquote, out of the closet or wearing one's sexuality on one's sleeve. And the values kind of of total transparency and especially sexual um, confessionalism kind of, of revealing every intimate detail about one's life as a sort of um, value akin to honesty or integrity. Uh, that is something that is sort of interrogated by uh, these um minority sexual subcultures that um, I was looking at. And so what I was trying to suggest was that um, it's the fact of um, living under scrutiny as immigrants and children of immigrants that causes these um, gay and lesbian um, North Africans, Franco-North Africans, to resort to sexual clandestinity. And this is um, in contrast to the idea that um, North African and Franco-North African um, gays and lesbians in France um, are just importing something from their parents' countries of origins, origin, meaning that they're importing um, the idea that uh, homosexuality has to make, it remain secret. And that is something that comes from outside France. It's not French. It's something that should be condemned or we should encourage these populations to abandon that attitude. But what I was trying to say was that actually this kind of closetedness or return to the closet, even in some cases of people who regret um, being out or have found outness lacking in some way, this sort of um, attraction to clandestinity, to sexual clandestinity, I, I'm suggesting is actually the result of living in modern France and has nothing to do with, or very little to do with the cultures of origin of the parents. And the fact of being kind of uh, an ethnic minority under scrutiny causes um, the, the sexual minorities living within that minority to um, 
reconsider radical transparency as a kind of assimilative move and as something that just sort of delivers uh, their minds and bodies to a kind of surveillance state in a way that they don't like or that they don't want to participate in. Um, so for me, I kind of look at that as a reconsideration of what um, sexual, uh, ethnic sexual minorities are doing as um, less something to do with regression or backwardness and more to do with uh, resisting a modern surveillance state and the way it's reflected even within sort of the um, in gay mainstream culture. Now, uh, the, the first chapter, uh, you talked about some of the things you do in the first chapter already, but um, here you look at uh, journalists and activists and how they address or portray uh, Muslim minorities when thinking about sexual diversity uh, in France. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit more about this? Um, uh, perhaps uh, you could talk about this report, uh, Homo Ghetto, that you you look at. What what do these, uh, or what, how does this report uh, kind of uh, frame homosexuality in uh, in their characterization of uh, ethnic minorities? And then um, the other part that you do in this chapter that was. Uh, really interesting was you kind of look at how uh, gay interest publications kind of a, a kind of a response in a way. So uh, what, what's kind of the two sides of this, this, uh, this event, if we can think of it in that way. So uh, this book, uh, Homo Ghetto uh, was kind of an important intervention by a journalist named Functional. And Functional uh, used to work at an Arab interest radio station um, and he had hosted a program about attitudes on homosexuality in the banlieue uh, that he found quite shocking. So he decided to do uh, a full-on investigative report. And he anonymously um, interviewed a group of uh, gays and lesbians um, um, and uh, not just North African, but also uh, white. Uh, I believe he interviewed a trans person as well um, who live or work in the banlieue. And uh, I was paying particular attention in my book to the first um, portrait. And uh, the title of that portrait is uh, Majid Rakai uh, et Gay. And that means Majid um, Thug and Faggot, or Thug and the pejorative word for homosexual. Um, and the and in the uh thug and faggot um, subtitle is it italicized. So there's a suggestion, there's a suggestion that one cannot be both sort of the stereotype of the banlieue, um, you know, thuggish guy with a lot of swagger and a, um, you know, a proud homosexual uh, without there being some kind of contradiction or even comic effect. And so what I found interesting about this portrait was that uh, he was, you know, normally an interview, like a sort of ethnographic interview is done in a kind of subtle way to sort of, you know, there's all this work to kind of um, uh, familiarize yourself and uh, get the interview subject to trust you so that they're comfortable sharing information. And what I found interesting about this um interview was that it was it started on extremely hostile terms with um 
the interviewer kind of seeing Majid as a schizophrenic kind of hypocrite, someone who leads a double life, someone who may be, you know, very um, proud of who they are, but is ashamed of being uh, an out homosexual, like of admitting his homosexuality to his peer group, to his uh, banlieue or North African peer group. Um, and kind of ignoring a lot of the what I thought was um, interesting behaviors and um, you know ways of negotiating uh, sexuality and or sexual attachments and religious and cultural attachments. And so, just to be more specific, um, you know, uh, so Feng Chamon would say things like, uh, you know, this guy is living in sexual misery. He uh, doesn't associate with white people. Um, he is a prostitute, a sex worker. Uh, he, you know, is living a schizophrenic attitude in regards to his religion. And uh, I found that actually this guy, Majid, um, the anonymous, that's his anonymous name, his anonymized name, uh, was, was doing a lot of, uh, interesting things in terms of his, um, answers and his, his life decisions and, uh, the way he's, what kind of groups he socialized with. Um, and specifically, um, he was sort of, um, uh, I, I felt that, uh, functional was kind of ignoring everything queer or non-homonormative that Majid was doing. So what I mean by that is like, you know, if uh, if the proper way of being gay, the homonormative way of being gay is to be out, uh, is to live in the city center, is um, to, you know, have just one monogamous partner uh, and to not do sex work, uh, then um, then uh, Majid is failing at being gay. Right. But if you take a different perspective and you see that Majid, for instance, is um, developing very interesting contacts with other men who have sex with men in similar situations in the banlieue and is doing all of that online or in cruising grounds or is actually having an an entire uh, kind of gay private life while simultaneously being part of a gang and uh, being part of a religious community and being part of a kind of traditional, uh, you know, a run-of-the-mill traditional uh, sort of North African community, uh, that that is a very sort of interesting negotiation of many communities and that Majid actually has his foot in many more communities and can pass through many more communities than someone like Fonction, his interviewer, can. So I found a kind of queerness in that sort of radical passing or having one foot in so many different communities and keeping yourself together at the same time and not choosing between a religious and a sexual identity. Right. Um, and I also found that, um, you know, Majid was, um, really, um, interrogating this whole idea that one has to leave the banlieue in order to live a fulfilled life. And granted, you know, he did talk about hardships, certain hardships that he had to live through, uh, living in the, living in the banlieue, but he also talked about sort of the happiness of being in a kind of large homosocial group, uh, in, in his gang, for instance. And the fact that even though, um, his gang, all his gang mates were ostensibly heterosexual, there was a certain high homoerotic charge and certain sexual things did happen, albeit not in a kind of, um, sort of vanilla monogamous way, 
right? Um, and so I was kind of trying to tease out all of these details that uh, the journalist Funk Shomo had missed in his portrayal. And my larger point actually in that chapter was to explain how, how strange it is that someone who professes to be, you know, a friend of the gay community who is himself gay, Funk Shomo, would subject another person to this kind of hyper-aggressive, hostile, almost psychoanalysis that um, gay people in the, you know, early 20th century uh, had to go through themselves, uh, albeit, um, um, you know, facing uh, a very skeptical uh, medical community or, psych- or, or psycho- uh, psychological, um, you know, a community of, of psychologists who are trying to demonize and pathologize homosexuality. And so I show kind of ways in which um, Chomo is actually repeating all the same steps that were used to, um, you know, demonize uh, and pathologize homosexuals uh, in the early 20th century and how, uh, you know, how strange that is. And how much it is kind of redolent of, um, or, or evocative of, of a false, false consciousness, or the idea that, um, you know, Majid may say that he is uh, happy or fulfilled, or that he's, had, you know, he's satisfied in his sex life, uh, but Fonctionment, who has a higher understanding of what is properly gay or homonormative, or uh, how what is the proper way to be gay, that he can analyze him transparently and say that this person fails crucially at being gay and that we need to really um, combat this whole sort of virilist strain that can be seen amongst certain types of banlieue gay men, that they're holding on to something which belongs more to the banlieue than to sort of the gay community in the city center they should aspire to be a part of. That leads uh, well into your your second chapter, which looks at uh, the role of psychoanalysis um, and how uh, psychoanalysts, psychiatrists understand sexuality's relationship with with culture and politics in in, uh, in many ways. Um, what's what's going on here? Where, where does this type of thinking come from uh, in, in the frame of psychoanalysis, and how would you say it affects uh, Muslim and ethnic minorities? Well, I think where this interest in psychoanalysis started was that I kept noticing um, that um, French psychoanalytical writers and thinkers were being invited to comment on uh, on Islam in um, in newspapers and op-eds. Um, it started with kind of an interest in the work of Malek Chevel, uh, the late Malek Chevel, um, but also people like uh, Fethi Ben Salama, um, and you know. Uh, non non North African psychoanalysts as well, who sort of took a very hostile view to immigration's effect on sort of sexual conventions and the symbolic order in France, or uh, that the, the idea was that the mass influx of people with sort of different relationships to um, you know to patriarchy or to a mother's role in the family or uh, a son's relationship to his father or a daughter's relationship to their parents, like that these things could totally destabilize sort of all the work that has been done to sort of, um, you know, properly uh, or just it, it could destabilize and throw off kind of the compass of how we understand 
sort of the French national psyche in a way, but more particularly um, the relationship between the sexes. So um, I started realizing that a lot of the work that was going into kind of demonizing or doing the character assassinations of, um, you know, uh, Muslim subjects, Arab subjects in France was happening um, via the, the psychoanalytical community. And I don't mean to say that this is representative of, um, of the French norm, but uh, this is much more kind of um, conservative strain, I would say. Like one of the people I study is Michel Schneider. What I was, what I was finding out was that uh, this was a very effective means of, of demonization. And the sort of uh, trope that I explore in this in this chapter is, is it's kind of an image. It's an image of a broken family. So I look at three figures. I look at the um, the uh, the impotent father, or the father who has lost his job and can't provide. Uh, the next figure is um, the veiled sister or mother. And the last figure is the turbulent adolescent, usually male, but can be female too. And all of these figures are interesting targets of psychoanalysis and interesting books have been written about these figures in different ways. And they complete each other, right? So because the uh, immigrant father who has become injured at his job or who who did not succeed in his immigration project uh, and can't make enough money and can't um, restore his own um, force and power over his family, which is crucial in psychoanalysis because of, you know, the Oedipus complex and the fact that the son and the father are in a relationship of tension, right? So what's perverse about this Muslim family is that the uh, power has moved from the father to the son. And it's the sons who are these unruly, turbulent, angry, aggressive kids that can basically replace their fathers, supplant their fathers, and they are making the law in the suburbs, for instance. This is in the rhetoric that I'm kind of being critical of, right? Um, And so then you have someone like, uh, you know, then the... uh, the position of the uh, veiled woman is interesting, uh, number one, as a mother, because the mother is seen um, not to sort of stand up for her own interests as a woman, but rather to um, enable the son in his patriarchal violence or his patriarchal aggression um, in order to advance uh, her own interests or her family's interests, right? So kind of Mothers in this context are not seen as sort of forces for, uh, I would say, like women's rights or um, standing up for um, women's interests, but rather as enablers of patriarchy and friends of patriarchy. And this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, with sort of the masculinization even of Muslim women. And so all of these forces kind of feed off of each other and create this dysfunctional family unit that I was kind of comparing and contrasting with what we consider to be sort of like the bourgeois family unit of Freudian psychoanalysis, the two parents uh, and the kids, and kind of the all the case studies that we hear about that involve that kind of arrangement, but rather to switch it to this um, to this family. And I, and I say that this is a broken family, but it's very much one that has been constructed. So I talk about how it's constructed uh, in the media and how its dysfunction is actually 
the end product of this long process of um, demonization um, and uh, kind of um, the, the, all the work that goes into presenting this family as non-functional, uh, even though it might be something, it, this family arrangement uh, is more so the product of um, you know, you could look at, for instance, the catalyst of this dysfunction in this family as being the um, the the injury to or the defeat of the father, which comes through not being able to have a successful immigration project or being able to sort of he wasn't able to guarantee that the generation after him could improve uh, upon the uh, accomplishments of the generation prior. Right. So. In a way, it kind of mirrors what I was talking about before, which is to view the problem not as a menace coming from the outside from North Africa, but rather a problem that starts within France and because of certain pressures on immigrants within France. Now, uh, you, you mentioned earlier this uh, literary trope of the, the Arab boy, um, kind of gave us a little uh, kind of snippet of what that's about. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Where where do we find this trope Um what kind of models of uh, virility or masculinity does it kind of present us? Um, and, and what, what cons- consequences does it shape? This trope, uh, for me, the thread kind of starts with um, the literature I was talking about in regard to my, you know, the undergrad thesis that I was doing uh, on uh, literary tourism in North Africa, uh, the likes of André Gide, uh, elsewhere Oscar Wilde, um, and many other French writers, and more recently, um, you know, Jean Genet, um, in the Spanish context, uh, Juan Goytisolo, for instance. Um, all of them have had interesting interactions with um, uh, both positive and negative with uh, young Arab men. Um, I could talk about Paul Bowles and his collaborations with uh, I use the word collaborations um, in quotes because there's a lot of controversy about that. But Paul Bowles collaborations with uh, Mohammed Marabit, uh, Mohammed Shukri also, and um, the Beat Generation, for instance, which talked very, uh, which spoke very vividly and maybe in a, in a kind of raw way about um, the attraction to North Africa being one, um, uh, you know that is um, inspired by drugs, but also the possibilities of alternative sexuality. Um, Allen Ginsberg, for instance, and Tahar Benjaloun talks about that in his interactions with, um, with uh, Allen Ginsberg. Um, anyway, so what I was noticing was a kind of evolution of the trope going from the trope of the Arab boy, um, going from uh, a figure that is sort of young, servile, uh, at your service, um, ready to you know please a, a visitor, uh, ready to accept uh, financial favors or other kinds of favors, um, and really just sort of a feature of the background and a kind of secondary character that will aid in um, the European voyager's process of self-discovery, um, and sexual self-discovery and self-actualization too. Uh, André Gide, for instance, goes to North Africa and regains his health, but also develops uh, or, or kind of um, accepts the idea there and kindles a kind of desire for um, men in North Africa. So it's sort of almost like the kind of influence of the region and climate 
on his personal transformation, which he takes back to France. Um, anyway, so, uh, I was noticing that, you know, and I, and I traced this thread through the era of, um, uh, colonization through decolonization to today, where we see echoes of this relationship with the Arab boy, but also a kind of disappointment that the relationship to the Arab boy or Arab young man has changed. So as early as, um, a book like, uh, like as early as, um, Roland Barthes, uh, Roland Barthes uh, Incident, which is a collection of sort of vignettes about his time in uh, North Africa and his interactions with North African young men. Um, you see a kind of change taking place where the Arab boy goes from being servile to being difficult, to uh, questioning sort of the wisdom of the European sage, to frustrating uh, the desires for knowledge, whether bodily or intellectual, of the European visitor. Um, and then in um, diaspora, in, uh, in, in metropolitan France, uh, the relationship between, you know, especially older white French uh, men, whether in the literary intelligentsia or not, and young Arab men has been very fraught. And, uh, you know, I looked at... Um, um, Frédéric Mitterrand's book uh, La, Mo La Mauvaise Vie uh, or the, the Bad Life where he talks about sort of um, disappointing or even tra uh, traumatic encounters with Arab men in sort of cruising areas or, or saunas uh, where he really makes a distinction between kind of his way of having a fulfilled sexuality and the fact that um, you know the men that he the Arab men that he interacts with are um, kind of violent sexual macho types um, who do not care about the pleasure of the European partner, right? Which is ironic when you look at, when you take a really, uh, when you step back and take a larger historical um, look at, at this, because, you know, the pleasures of the Arab partners were never considered in sort of the previous arrangements of the, the ones that featured the servile Arab boy. And uh, Joseph Boone, who came out with a book recently called The Homoerotics of Orientalism, he studies that very closely, uh, this kind of the disproportion and the power imbalances in um, sex tourism narratives or the literary voyages of, that have a sexual char uh, character, that the literature um, devoted to that. Um, so... I was kind of studying the this uh, this trope to show how you know this this idea of a difficult or resistant or frustrating Arab boy who just doesn't give themselves up as easily as they should. Uh, this has a long history, and I want to connect that history to the previous history of sort of sexual availability of Arab boys that was part and parcel of kind of power imbalances that had to do with. Uh, colonial uh, power and and uh, colonial arrangements. An excellent chapter you have uh, looks at the cinematic representations of, of ethnic sexualities, um, and here you're you're doing a lot. Um, but uh, what what what's happening uh, in some of the filmmakers you're looking at? Um, how do sympathetic filmmakers uh, portray uh, Franco Arab? sexuality and virility um how do they navigate these public private uh interactions within their own subjectivity uh what kinds of spaces can these uh 
types of uh, sexual expression take place? Uh, what, what what are you trying to do in this chapter? So I think like in that chapter on cinema, I'm trying to show how cinema can be a double-edged sword. So cinema can be used to sort of expose and embarrass um, immigrants and minorities in regard to their sex lives, which may be, um, you know, not properly homosexual, not properly heterosexual. Uh, and that there's a certain glee kind of in, especially in documentaries, in exposing the secret lives of, of uh, immigrants and minorities. Um, and I think like this is maybe a little bit disconnected, but we saw a version of that with, um, you know, the fact that, for instance, um, the Nice uh, terrorist, um, um, Hamid Bouhlel, was also on gay dating apps and was, you know, his phone contained, you know, um, pictures of his both male and female sexual con- conquests. And there was this kind of glee in exposing uh, the private life of, uh, of, of, of this uh, perpetrator. Uh, there's there's many many other instances that I can cite, um, but you know you just have to go to a French bookstore like the Fnac to see uh, how many books are available um, that expose uh, you know the the truth about Arab and Muslim sexuality. Uh, Leila Slimani, who is uh, who won France's top literary prize, uh, just came out with um, a book exposing sort of the uh problems uh the very problematic attitudes towards sexuality among among arabs uh, kamel daoud um who wrote um the um i think the english title is merceau an investigation or i think the title in french is uh merceau contre enquête um and anyway so he uh you know came out with an op-ed in the New York Times uh, talking about the sexual misery of the Arab world. And there's just kind of a demand for this kind of speech of, of exposure and um, taking the veil off um, in regards to uh, sexuality in the Muslim world. Okay, So that was just a lot of context for what I want to say next, is that cinema could, could continue in that vein. But I also found that certain filmmakers were interested instead not in exposing, but actually in visually depicting um, secret or comfortable or, or intimate spaces, spaces that are suggested to be outside of um, public space. So what I mean by that is like, for instance, you take a film like André Téchiné's uh, Les Témoins, uh, or The Witnesses, that's the English title, and he will show you... Um, cruising areas that are under cover of darkness, uh, that are in parks. Uh, he will show you what happens indoors as opposed to outdoors. Uh, he has a love story that takes place within, a, within an RV away from the public between a police officer and, uh, and his gay lover, an Arab police officer and his gay lover. Um, and, you know, you see how, uh, the police officer, for instance, will say one thing in public and another thing in private when he's with his lover. Um, you see in a movie like um, Christophe Honoré's uh, Le Maubin or Man at Bath uh, that the banlieue, uh, far from being a place where um, you know homosexuals have to hide, uh, could actually be a place where homosexuals can cruise uh, to find. Uh, 
partners or where men who have sex with men in the banlieue can easily find partners because it's such a homosocial environment and um, the possibility of a homoerotic encounter is embedded in any kind of encounter that you can have with between uh, two men who are just uh, minding their business in the banlieue. And so that kind of shifts the terrain from the idea that you have to go to a specific designated neighborhood in the city center, uh, what we would call a neighborhood or the marais, in order to find um, opportunity or satisfaction, uh, romantic or sexual, uh, and that um, you do not have to visit a designated space. The space is all around you in which that kind of opportunity to present itself perhaps not in the same transparent way or in not a, I mean, maybe the opportunities are not as easily had, but the whole space um, is a space of possibility in that sense. Um, so, and I also wanted to study. So another film that I mentioned is uh, Sebastian Lifshitz is the, it's called the, uh, it's called wild side. And it's a really interesting film about a love triangle between a trans French white woman um, a banlieue Franco-Arab guy who is, uh, who, who is a sex worker and has sex with men and women, and a um, Russian refugee, perhaps immigrant, uh, refugee slash immigrant, who um, originally is in a relationship with the trans woman character, but also uh, develops... Um, uh, love and uh, a sexual bond with the uh, Franco-Arab part of the love triangle. And they're all extremely um, well, you know, they find kind of through living together and through living on sort of the margins of Paris and living together in these uh, undergrounds, which are both sexual and economic, that they really have a lot in common and that um, they also have to live in secret, but the space that they share together is a secret clandestine underground space, which provides them comfort and which provides an alternative family. Right. So, um, I think like those, those are just some of the films that I talk about and the way they kind of redefine, uh, the idea of like private versus public and where one's, you know, um, sex, sex life and where's, where's, where one's kind of, consciousness about one's uh, sexual orientation or one's sexual practice uh, takes place. Uh, I think all these three films kind of force us to reconsider sort of the magnetic draw of like uh, the gay city, the, the gay city center or the city center as just a privileged space where, uh, you know, ter- uh, what do you call it? Public display, public displays of sexuality or affection um, uh, can happen. Um, and so I just found that like cinema was a really interesting tool to depict what intimacy looks like on screen uh, without necessarily exposing it. And then how tricky that is and how subtle the filmmakers have to be to both talk about something which is secret um, without exposing it to a harsh light. Now, uh, y- your last chapter uh, focuses on pornography, which um – in your work basically captures these exaggerated sexual projections in the most clearest ways, really. Um, what role does pornography play in the sexualization of ethnic bodies? Well, uh, like I said before, it's the most kind of 
um, undistilled um, reflection of anxieties and fears uh, about um, immigration and about um, ethnic minorities. But as we know from um, psychoanalysis, you know, fears and desires are very much connected. And just as sort of like you can almost um, you can imagine a kind of graph which would show that uh, the more alarm there is about insecurity or lack of security and even terrorism, the more there the more interest there is in sort of the um, what I'm calling the young Arab uh, homo thug or um, you know very masculine um, aggressive. Uh, uh, banlieue, banlieue character, and the uh, you know the veiled woman, uh, the veiled woman who must go through a strip tease to be sexually liberated, mostly by a white male partner, uh, who might show her uh, her her way to orgasm, uh, and you know explain to her what sexual pleasure is, right? Um, so I think that uh, so. I made a distinction actually in the chapter between um, gay pornography and straight pornography because I found that um, while, of course, there's exploitation on both sides and there's distortion and exaggeration on both sides, there are some studios on the gay side of things that actually play with uh, sort of fears generated by the political and media establishment in an interesting way. And the studio that I'm talking about is Cité, Cité Beurre. And Cité Beurre means, Cité means like housing projects and Beurre means Arab. And uh, their sort of scenarios are so um, kind of exaggerated to the point of being comical, but in a kind of tongue-in-cheek, self-conscious way. So they'll have scenarios of like young Balneo guys, uh, you know, ganging up on policemen and getting a kind of sexual revenge or kidnapping young bourgeois twinks, uh, young men, you know, very effeminate, hairless young men and holding them for ransom, um, or, uh, you know, getting back at, uh, breaking into, um, an apartment of two, you know, uh, upwardly mobile gay guys. Um, and what's interesting in the films is that, so, so I make a contrast, like I said, um, between gay pornography and straight pornography, because in the gay pornography, you see sort of uh, these men as kind of being like enfant terrible or, um, you know, not docile, not assimilated uh, young men who are playing with the power of the taboo and generating um, erotic interest based on the, the taboo and sort of turning the tables of power and getting a kind of sexual revenge over those who have power in, the, in, in French society. But in the straight pornography, you see, um, you know, mostly it's uh, it's either veiled women who are being forcibly unveiled, or there's the trope of the beret, and the beret is the female beur or female arrow. And um, so beret, uh, just an aside here, if you do a, a Google search and you type in beret, uh, you might, you'll get pages and pages of pornographic results before you get anything that just speaks to the condition of being, you know, a young Arab woman in France. Um, and so the other trope besides the veiled woman who must be forcibly unveiled is the, um, the trope of the desperate barrette or the a kind of poor thuggish, uh, uh, woman who is in dire economic straits and, and will do anything to, um, to get some money, 
and who is hard on her luck and who can be paid to do things that are kind of degrading, right? So there's quite a few studios who have who have banked on that kind of trope. And um, there was a whole issue actually in Telkel, which is a Moroccan francophone magazine about um, Arabs and the X-rated film industry, uh, which was really a really interesting special issue that goes into more detail and interviews some of the porn stars. But anyway, I, I, I found this contrast actually between gay and straight pornography uh, because so in the in the gay pornography, actually, you see men who are fully clothed, uh, who are wearing, you know, balaclavas or masks. Uh, they don't have to reveal their identity. What's more important is sort of the sexual act and the fact that they're kind of reduced actually to their uh, genitals, basically, kind of the way that we, we see similar things happening with black men in, in, in straight porn in the United States. Um, and sort of reduced to this kind of abject, just ethnic symbol that is anonymous and interchangeable, right? And what's what's so different about that is that in the straight pornography, uh, what's so different about the straight pornography is that you see um, women, uh, what's important about the women is that they be made nude and that uh, sort of their um, state of mind or emotional state be visible on their faces, um, so it's just very interesting sort of about like what needs to be exposed, what, what can be hidden um, in terms of uh, the pornographic imaginary. Um, but what I also found was that pornography doesn't just, um, I'm talking about the gay pornography now, it doesn't, doesn't just stoke fear. It also sort of um, uses uh, sex and sexual tension and sexual release as a way to kind of process those fears and to have a less kind of terrified attitude about the other uh, because sexual pleasure can be generated from this meeting of um, adversaries and uh, that one can get over or one can process one's uh, the tensions that exist in, in, in French society in a sexual way. Now, you, you wrap up the book kind of thinking about uh, our contemporary moment um, in this kind of broader context of of refugees across Europe and uh, other kind of uh, events happening. Um, in what ways do you see the continued uh, sexual demonization of Muslims uh, within this, this kind of uh, contemporary moment? Um, how, how do you think your book can kind of help us think about uh, what's happening in France and, and Europe more broadly today? Well, this is a very tricky issue because it's always – difficult to talk about the now. Um, but I think, uh, so I'll say a couple of things. Um, so I think the biggest example for why it's important to think about sexual demonization of, uh, immigrants and minorities is what's been happening now with the refugee crisis. And for instance, with the backlash after the events in Cologne, Germany. So, uh, there was a New Year's Eve a couple of years ago um, where um, there were allegations that roving hordes of young men of migrant background were sexually harassing and sexually assaulting women. And, you know, there were uh, quite a few cases documented by police. Um, but uh, at the same time, it wasn't necessarily uh, Syrian refugees who were committing this violence. And, um, uh, and only a very few, um, only uh, a very small number of people were actually uh, sent to court or prison 
uh, for prosecution over these these crimes. Um, but nevertheless, um, the uh, public opinion basically. Uh, there was a sea change in public opinion um, almost from one day to the next where sort of Angela Merkel's policy of welcoming um, Syrian refugees, especially uh, uh, what became suddenly unpopular. Um, And it was really the events in Cologne that kind of triggered this. Um, And there's some articles on Jedalia that explain what happened better than I can. And I can refer for you to them or your audience. Um, But, Basically, it just was amazing to me how much uh, opinions could change based on this this incident. And so we saw things like uh, campaigns to, um, uh, you know, um, have sort of sensitization um, materials placed in sort of the materials uh, that are destined for new arrivals uh, to Germany, for instance. Uh, there was also a public discussion about um, swimming pools uh, and whether um, you know these Syrian refugees and other refugees could be expected to behave in a mixed gender environment. Um, and of course, there were incidents where people did not behave and sort of the media extrapolated from that. Um, and I think that this is becoming this this whole uh, idea of like the sexual menace of especially um, of the sexual menace of young, large young groups of uh, men uh, is something that we've seen in all kinds of xenophobic materials. But the far right is uh, really capitalizing on that today. And you see it in a lot of their rhetoric that, you know, the far right has all of a sudden become friend to women and homosexuals uh, because they see uh, this terrain as being a kind of prime recruiting ground for new followers because this idea of the sexual menace is so believable and people will really believe it to be, to be true. Uh, even though it is part of sensational, you can't divorce it from sensational newscasts. Um, and the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, like to, to revisit again the, the profile of the, of the Nice attacker and even one of the Paris attackers, uh, Salah Abdeslam, um, was, uh, you know, there were witnesses who said that he had been seen in gay clubs in Belgium, I believe. Uh, and then um, Mohamed Bouhlel had a, had a whole other, um, you know, he had a, a very, you know, um, active bisexual life and that uh so what 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 i was kind of interested in in that story is the idea that um homosexuality for instance used to be seen as something that was kind of incompatible with radicalization or incompatible with the path to terrorism uh but now very much people are have kind of ceased uh i would say certain people have ceased to see um i would say homosexuals or or Arab homosexuals as necessarily um, a kind of um, privileged group for assimilation that is maybe perhaps more ready for assimilation or more docile or less willing to go down the path of radicalization. But I think with with sort of the age of of cell phones, and this is something that we also saw with Omar Mateen, um, the attacker in the uh, Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting, who also had a, a, a gay life uh, that he hid, but also didn't hide. 
that it's the age of cell phones which are which are making people realize that uh, this this whole concept of having you know uh, a bisexual uh, double life or uh, a public the public private distinction is kind of getting worn thin with the more sophisticated tools that we have for surveillance. And so I think that what I what I what I've been kind of noticing and what I'd like to write about more is the way that this sort of um, this hyper scrutiny that and these these very sophisticated tools we have for prying into people's um, private lives on their cell phones, what that will reveal sort of about um, these assumptions that we have about how gay people are mostly secular or mostly, you know, are, are not going to be tempted by, by radicalism and are so different from the mainstream and their communities that they would be sort of ideal tar- targets for rescue or assimilation. Um, so I think I'll, I'll just leave it there for the, for that answer. Yeah, no, uh, Muhammad, it's, it's a wonderful book. And I do think you're right that uh, there's lots of extensions of the project that, uh, that I hope you and others will, will take up. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're, you're working on now or things that you plan to have uh, coming down the line? Yeah, so um, I'm just now getting started on a second book project. And uh, the tentative title is Eurabia. Um, reverse crusades and counter colonization in European dystopian literature. And so what I'm looking at there is sort of all the kind of fear mongering um, rhetoric and fear mongering fiction about what will happen to Europe if uh, politicians don't act um, on curtailing immigration and sort of the demographic demographic dystopian projections that are made as a result of that. So some of your listeners might be familiar with uh, Michel Welbeck's book Submission, which kind of imagines uh, France like a subdued France under a Muslim president. Uh, There's quite a few other um, works that deal with this. And um, there's also nonfiction works that talk about, um, you know, there's a book called The French Suicide, which is written by Eric Zemmour. And basically, the the sort of um, the gendering that I was talking about of France gendered as female and Islam and Arabs gendered as male kind of continues in this work in the sense that um, sort of left-wing, centrist, accommodationist politicians are seen as sort of weak, um, you know, less than, less than men, kind of like incomplete men who cannot face up to uh, immigration and this, these hordes of aggressive masculine uh, men who are arriving, you know, by the boatloads into France, and that it requires a kind of uh, rekindling of older forms of European masculinity for us to um, face this threat and to actually stand up to it. So the sort the it's kind of a whole stoking of the chauvinist element in kind of nationalist politics that is being called for now by the far right and even by the right in sort of more subtle forms. Uh, but for instance, this book, The French Suicide, talks about how there's this sort of like perverse desire on the French left and the French center to accommodate immigration and to sort of, um, you know, take it, uh, sort of to sort of like take it lying down. Uh, 
And uh, so I, what I'm interested kind of in is in this sort of rekindling of French national masculinity, white French national masculinity, and more specifically Christian masculinity. So you see in a lot of like far right uh, rhetoric, um, rehabilitations of figures like uh, Charles Martel or Charles the Hammer. Uh, Charles the Hammer was um, um, a, uh, you know, uh, a warrior, basically, who repelled the Muslim invaders as they were um, coming up the Iberian Peninsula. And, you know, the Muslim invaders were making raids on France at that time, but were never really able to occupy it. Some debate whether they even wanted to occupy it. But Charles, Charles Martel repelled the uh, Muslim Arab invaders at uh, Poitiers, also known as the Battle of Tours. Um, and so he is rehabilitated as a kind of person, a mythological figure who guaranteed the Christian future and destiny of Europe. And that if not for him, uh, Europe might look very different and Europe might look like what will happen if we do nothing to curtail immigration and these Arab and black men, basically African immigration takes over Europe. Um, so I'm interested in sort of, in sort of this uh, alarmist uh, visions of the future. It's, it's almost like a, not science fiction, but anticipatory fiction of what might happen uh, demographically to Europe if, if uh, politicians uh, don't stand up to immigrants. Um, but I also want to look at sort of, um, for instance, how the Battle of Poitiers or the Battle of Tours was depicted in uh, French school textbooks. And uh, imagine also like what it ha might have been like to deal, for instance, with a classroom in the French banlieues where you have basically a majority of black and Arab kids who are reading this history lesson, a uh, history lesson which is also done in the same year as the discussion of, uh, of slavery um, and the origins of slavery actually in uh, the Arab slave trade, as opposed to um, talking about the European slave trade, which came later. Um, so uh, I, I, that was, that's sort of, those are sort of two chapters that I tentatively, I tentatively have uh, right now. And I'm still, I'm still working on it and still generating uh, more ideas, but um, I'm, probably, so far. Uh, yeah, I'm probably going to, dedicate, you know, the next uh, couple of years to, to this project. Great. Mohammed. Yeah. Good luck with that. That sounds like a, another fascinating project and I'm, I'm sure you will uh, do it justice in your analysis. So thanks again for uh, making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Mohammed Amadeus Mack about Sexagon, Muslims, France, and the sexualization of national culture published with Fordham University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.